I received an email um, from someone who listened to an earlier class and asked me a question. The question is not that complicated, but I just wanted to, for those of you who do watch this online, if you do have questions, um, I'm not sure exactly where they sent it. They somehow sent it off on the line, or you can just send it to Anand de Palo Alto, and it'll come to me, and I'm happy to answer your questions, even if they're from something before. This question was just because um, this person, Samantha, um, listens to enough of my talks to realize that I contradicted myself. <laughs> Which is, of course, what happens when you speak extemporaneously. Sometimes you say one thing and sometimes you say another. But it, was, uh, it wasn't actually from the book, but it was something I was speaking of, um, and I've referred to it in different times, of watching those young men when they were walk down the street with what they called boom boxes and those big square things with big speakers that played cassettes, walking on their shoulders with this, you know, this, to my mind, incredibly dissonant, sort of angry music, you know, just beating into their heads. I mean, now people put it all the way into here, so this actually seems like far away, but... And I said something to Swamiji about how the music was so uh, uh, anguishing in certain ways, or or upsetting, at least it's very upsetting to me. Um, but they seem like, I said something like, they seem like perfectly nice people, but they seem to be walking down the street. And then Swami answered me very somberly. And he said, oh, if you could see the karma. However, apparently, at some point I also said, oh, if you could see the consciousness. I quoted Swami as using two different words, and by now I don't really know which word he used. And so the question I got was, what's the difference between karma and consciousness? which was a very valid question. So I thought it was worth answering anyway. You know, the, the question of what is consciousness, um, when I was uh, talking to Lakshman, who was Swami Kriyananda's secretary and is just a, the best proofreader and grammarian and wordsmith, he just is so exact, he's extraordinary. And I had asked him once for a definition of consciousness, he was the right person to ask. And he said that when Swami was asked that question, he said, you can't really define consciousness because consciousness is the reality into which, in which everything else exists. And when you're, when you're going to define anything, you have to define it in terms of some, uh, some context or another. I heard a word today, sapro? Now, I'm not quite sure what the word was, but... There, the word I was looking up was separocracy or something like that, and it, it said, it defined it in terms of the word sapro. Of course, I had no idea what sapro meant, so I really had no, still had no idea what it meant. Whatever the actual word is, which I'm not saying correctly, it means uh, a ruler in a distant place. It was like the Persian Empire or something, the name of the rulers in a distant place. So they could set up little fief- fiefdoms and just rule them according to their own, and that's what it was all referring to. But it's like you have to have a reference point to have a definition because you use other words that refer to it. Um, If you think about that, I mean, it's always other words. It's wide, it's straight, it's narrow, it's crooked. It's a big round circle, you know, with a line through the middle. But you have to know what a line is and a circle is before that definition will help you. An orange is like a lemon, only sweeter. Well, if you've never tasted a lemon, you have no idea what an orange is either. Um, Lime, uh, chartreuse is yellow with a little more green. If you have no reference point. And the point is, you see, there's no reference point for consciousness. 
because consciousness is the underlying reality. So you can describe certain things, certain kinds of consciousness, but to describe what it is, Swami said it can't be defined. Now we could find words, but so often people say consciousness and they mean attitude, they mean your general approach to life, your general feeling about things, but you haven't really defined what consciousness is, you've just described things within it. Um, karma is the, uh, the sort of cause and effect energy that you've set into motion. And of course, because of your consciousness, we have certain responses and then we set certain energies in motion. So the reason I've used those two words interchangeably, talking about the men and their boom machines, is because either one would work. What Swami was actually saying to me, and, and sometimes the point of it is more important than the words, is that what, what he could see was he could see the vibration of their inner reality, and he could see that that vibration matched that music. Whereas I just saw them walking down the street, and they looked like perfectly ordinary people to me, and I wondered why ordinary people would be attracted to that, and he said, because it matched them. And karma is just saying how they're going to express or what's going to happen to them, what their destiny is. Consciousness is the vibration that they're existing on right now. So, and I, as I said, I answered that partly just to tell people that you can do that whenever you want to. You can send me a note. I had another thought here for just a second. Um, I, did I talk about why people take the radio to the beach? Did I talk about that last week or not? Because it was an interesting thought that I heard Swami talk about. Um, and it's, it's related to why people carry a boombox. And, and this is partly my own interpretation of what Swami said, but you know, there's kind of this inclination to want to keep things at an equilibrium. You know, we, we try to just, if we're hungry, we want to eat. If we're sleepy, we want to go to bed. If we're bored, we want to do something. We're sort of always trying to just keep things at an, an equilibrium that works for us. And what the equilibrium we're mostly trying to maintain is that we want to live in a world that matches us, that matches our vibration. So if we're um, caught in a prison camp and people are being really mean to us, that's extremely disconcerting to us. And sometimes people become very angry and hateful when they're surrounded by that. It can work both directions. Um, but you, you, you're always wanting to make your world match you. You decorate your house to look like you. You try to go live in a place that looks like you. You try to get a job where the people are compatible. And if that equilibrium is off, one feels uncomfortable. Sometimes life forces you. And so something has to adjust. Well, what he was saying is that when people go into a natural world, because he was talking about how people will go to a beautiful, pristine, natural place, and they'll bring, and then those days it was transistor radios, you'd bring a transistor radio and you'd sit it next to you, and you'd fill the space with this loud noise, or the baseball game or something like that, which is, of course, more of a temporary thing than constant, or people come into their house and just turn on the television. And they'll turn on a television in every room so that no matter where you are, you always have this noise. But you're, he, Swami said you're trying, people are trying to make the external world match their internal world, which was just such an interesting way to put it. And then I thought of this equilibrium, which I've sort of made up as an idea, and I, I think it's true, is that if I'm really restless inside and it's really calm out there, it makes me so nervous that I need to make it match. Otherwise, I'm under too much stress just having to deal with this. It was actually a really helpful way to think about it, which is why 
you, you can also find out who you are by looking around at your own living space and looking at your own record collection or looking at the movies that you usually watch or the books that are on your shelf. You can actually find out who you are. Like, what, what kind of an atmosphere do I want to create? I have, for the last month or even almost, maybe even a little longer, I'm not, um, I'm not a compulsively orderly person, but I'm generally a tidy person. But I have observed that the main space, which is one room where I live, is very disorderly. And I haven't been able to bring it into order, which is very unusual for me. But I've been also, I've been juggling a whole lot of things that have been making me feel more stressed than usual. But I've I've allowed that, so I have a kind of a slightly chaotic environment. And it, 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 I mean, another day passed and I didn't straighten it out. It's not terrible by any other standards, but it's just interesting to me that I keep making a little confusion outside of myself, too. Which, of course, doesn't help. But that's one of the ways, you know, one can tell. I wear my hair really short these days, and I keep wanting to cut it shorter. I'm just sort of like wanting to just clear the decks and just go forward. You know, there's just all these different things that we, we do that are a reflection of our consciousness. We, we're all being compelled at all times by the, the, these... Subconscious is probably the right word for it. I would just say buried realities. Swamiji once said that you don't do, that that everything is 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 predestined. He and Dr. Peter asked him. He said, "You mean when I go to my closet and I decide to wear this particular tie?" Swami said, "Yes." I mean that that goes into this whole. You know, now that I've invited emails, this this goes into this whole question of free will, which I'm really not able to answer. But it's more like ev- everything inevitably leads to something else, and there's no there's no breaking point. That's why Brigu could write about people who would live thousands of years in the future and he would know exactly how it was going to happen because there's this inevitable flow. And yet in the middle of it, we all have to continue to act as if my response makes a difference because um, my response is what creates the next event. And and then more than that, it, it sets the whole trajectory it's very, very difficult to parse apart. I'm really quite incapable of doing it. And I like to walk around thinking this world is a dream, but it doesn't look like a dream to me. <laughs> and so it, there's another part of us where we just have to um, keep our eyes on the goal. You know, just the goal is self-realization, and all of these other things are going to keep happening because that's the energy that's in motion. But if we just keep our consciousness there, We'll just be drawn to it. This is what Swamiji says in other places. It's not merely that we're calling to God. It's that God is also calling us. And we're not merely offering ourselves to God. God is also pulling us toward him. So I think the most, the most helpful and liberating way to think about it is to, is to feel that pull, which really comes from the spiritual eye. And if you don't actually feel it, um, to, to affirm it, to... Uh, when when you affirm or imagine a subtle reality that you're not feeling, but that is actually there, it's quite different than just wishful thinking. Wishful thinking is just hoping something will happen. But to really concentrate with enough force so that you activate that reality. 
And, and that's sort of like we move through this world, but what we want to feel is we want to feel that we're being pulled. Or, or it's the word track, tracker beam, tractor beam. That's how I've thought of it sometimes, that you're sort of in this current. And even though a lot of things happen, you have to make a lot of decisions, you're always watching for that current. I mean, that's the will of God. That's actually the very first one that Swami says here, so we might as well start. Okay, this is number 369. And Swami says, Sir, I asked the Master one afternoon at his desert retreat, how will I know your will once you have left your body? I don't think Swamiji knew when he was asking that question how very soon Master would leave his body because Swamiji was only with him for three and a half years. And Master died just before he was 60. So there was no reason for Swamiji to know it was going to come so soon. Master answered, You already know my will, Master reassured me, at least in the important things. Indeed, Swami says, I've always done my best to carry out his will alone and have always found it continuing to unfold in my mind as I followed his will as nearly as I was capable of understanding it. There are several things that are interesting here, not the least of which is, Swami asked the question, how will I know your will? And when most people think about that, we think about that as a very detailed question. And and a lot of people are inclined, and it's it's not my personal inclination, but it is many people's inclination, to feel that every little decision, you know, should I buy the blue socks or the purple socks, should I go, you know, to the Spanish restaurant or the Italian one? Should I go see the movie, this movie or that movie? And they, they're always sort of feeling like Master has an opinion. And they want always to move according to that. And it, my inclination is more to go in the general flow rather than to be doing it like that. So that's just, that's sort of like full disclosure here is why I'm saying it like that. But when Swami asked Master, how will I know your will? He said, you already know my will, at least in the important ways, important things, he said. Now, inasmuch as Swamiji had this huge responsibility to carry out uh, Master's mission, which Master knew about in that conversation, and he was reassuring him right then that you don't have to be anxious about this. You do know. So it's, that's really quite different than the way one would think about it. And I, I don't have a really, um, I don't have a really brilliant way to, to parse this apart, but I, I wanted to stop and stay with it in my own heart for a while because we become anxious about things. And um, I remember, I mean, I, I was reflecting on the fact that when Swamiji was with us, he would often make suggestions about, or, or try to solve problems with certain specific solutions or make suggestions about how we could do something. And he himself said in other contexts, he said a lot of times, he said, I'm just trying to be creative. I'm trying to stimulate creative solutions. He said, and he actually said it's frustrating to him. He said if, if, if he, he has a good idea and someone else has a better idea, but instead of expressing their better idea, they want to do what he wants to have done. He said, I'm just setting directions, and, and again, I'm just trying to stimulate creativity. And then sometimes he would make suggestions, exact, specific suggestions, like I would 
raise a problem to him or something, and he would say, we could do this, we could do that. Or he would call up and make a suggestion. And his, he didn't know all the facts. He didn't, he didn't have all the information either about <clears throat> temperaments or resources or obstacles, just simple objective things. And for too long, my inclination was to raise those objections, which he never appreciated and it never led to very creative conversations because he was trying to put out a creative solution and I was trying to put blocks in front of him. And what I was blocking was not just the specific, but the flow of creative ideas. So I gradually began to realize that the way to think about it was not what did he suggest, but what was he trying to accomplish. And even just turning that, instead of looking at his specific, I would ask, where is he trying to go? And as soon as I started trying to think about where he was trying to go, several things would happen. One, I would have better creative ideas. And I was also able to express whatever, um, whatever I had to add to the discussion in such a way that we were still moving. Because even in my mind, I wasn't stopping his energy. I was trying to take it where it needed to go. You know, but of course, we won't be able to do that because so-and-so has now resigned from the project. Okay, well then if they resign, then what are we going to do because we're going to go here? It just sounded completely different to him. And much more, it was completely different in my heart. And so when Swami says here that in, in important ways, he knew what Master wanted. You know, he had, a, he had a feeling for what Master's mission really was. He had a feeling for the way Master worked. And he had, had a, uh, a, a very strong uh, intuition of his own about how to work with people and so on. So this is why Swami said, I've always done my best to do what he wanted me, and I've always found it continuing to unfold. Because he's kept clear in his mind where Master was trying to go, at least insofar as Swamiji understood it, which I trust his interpretation completely. Not everyone interprets Master w- Master's will as Swamiji understood it, but, but I... I have complete faith in Swami's understanding of it. But, you know, there's other disciples of Master who think Master was trying to go in an entirely other direction. So it's of of no small importance to Swamiji that Master reassured him in such a specific, in such a global way. It's also one of those comments that I I was commenting this morning that um, in the last month or so, because of some of the circumstances that we've all been living through, just the challenging times in which we live, several things that Swamiji said to me you know, decades ago that, that seem to apply to a specific situation, I hear them again in my mind and I realize they mean something completely else. You know, suggestions, mostly suggestions he gave me for my own personal development that I thought were, you know, more or less dealt with. And then I realized, no, actually, they're not. Because here we are, we're just coming right back around again. So that's, that's the other way of how um, the, the inspiration of the guru works. You hear it, you respond to it, you think you've, you know it, but then it unfolds again in a completely different way. And I think this uh, comment of Swamiji's, which he wrote down here, was Master knowing that there was going to be a time when Swamiji would not only be completely alone, but he would be fiercely criticized by his gurubhais, who all claimed to know Master's will better than he did. 
I mean, that's been the crux of all the years that Swamiji went through. And, you know, when someone wrote Swami a letter, I mean, people wrote him letters many times, but Swamiji never made any secret of the fact that SRF had expelled him and that SRF disapproved of him. And a lot of this in the book that is about to be published, I I have a lot of this written out because it's very important ideationally. The facts are interesting, but it's the ideas that are more important. And, uh, I mean, just in principles, let me just think, where was I going with that? Oh, yes. And so he felt when people were trying to make up their minds, when when people felt they were disciples of Master and were trying to make up their minds about whether they would join Ananda or not, he felt he had an obligation to tell them that there are other direct disciples of Master who will tell you you're making a mistake because he felt that people needed to know what they were getting into. He didn't think it was fair to just draw them in. They'd been introduced to Master in another way, to draw them in here and then only later have it be revealed to them that some people thought they were making a mistake. So he, 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 that compelled him to, be, to talk about something that he would rather not have talked about, but he had to, because people needed to know what they were getting into. So over the years, many times, and and in one particular exchange of letter that I read, that I had in my file, someone had written Swamiji basically saying, would Master approve of Ananda? Would Master approve of you leading Ananda? And if Master would not approve, why are you doing it? And it wasn't an accusatory letter. It was actually just like, explain this to me. And Swami's answer was very interesting on many levels. And part of it was, he said, um, I know that, SRF considers me beyond the pale. He said, few people appreciate how desperately I tried to say to stay within the pale. He says, I had to go look up what is the pale. I think it's actually, some, it might even be in Russia for all I know. It's some place, it's an actual place, and people got exiled outside of it or got to stay inside of it. I had to look because, you know, how did these things develop, if I remember that correctly. But, uh, but he said, and as a consequence, he said, I've had to um, g- go it alone in a way that is extremely dangerous and I would never recommend to anyone, <laughs> which I thought was just very honest. He said, I would have loved to have been able to work in concert and to have the input of other people who knew Master. He said, but it was denied to me. So I've had to go forward only on the basis of my own perception. But he said, I said again, I wouldn't recommend it if you have a choice. However, when he says, how will I know your will? And Master says, you know my will. Now that's something that I'm sure in his life, Swamiji came back to that over and over and over again in the important things. And the important things are all that matter. You can get from here to there. You know, we can get from here to the back of the room by walking around the perimeter, by going outside and coming back in the front door by going through the yoga studio and going in the balcony and coming over the balcony. I mean, there's lots of different ways to get there. The point is, where are we trying to go? And, if, and that's the important things. Where are we really trying to go? And then we can see how that will work. I was laughing, thinking about that for a moment. There was a, boy, a little boy who lived in our community for a while. And he was, he was just a, sort of a, one of those monkey kind of kids who just likes to climb. And his parents lived in a two-story townhouse and you normally go into the two-story townhouse by walking in through the patio. You open the sliding door, and then you go inside. He would go 
to a tree over to the side. He would climb the tree. He would come across the branches. He would go from the branch onto the balcony, and then he would go in through the second story. It was just like that was his preferred way of entering. And he ended up in the house just like everyone else, but that's, that's how he got there. So this is also when Swami says the important things. He's not necessarily talking about things that are too small, which is why I personally... I, I read this quote that was actually attributed to Babaji, Mahavatar Babaji. It's not in Autobiography of a Yogi, and there was no attribution besides attributing it to Babaji, so I have no idea. But the, the, what it said actually explained something that helped me. Basically it says if you... And I, I now I can't remember the exact words, but it, it's not that important. But it says... Essentially, if you invoke the name of the guru too often, it diminishes his importance in your life. Which was an interesting statement. But what he meant by that was, there's a power there, and you don't want to dissipate that power by trivializing it. Now, I know that there'll be a lot of, there could be a lot of other ways of interpreting that. But it sort of explains something to me that I didn't quite understand before. Which is, there's a lot of ways to get from here to there. And if we start using the authority of the guru for, for, for small things, for two small things, we actually bring his attention down to something that's too small. And I feel, I, in my, I'm, by no means am I in any way comparable to master in any way. But because I have a certain position of, of authority in this community, I sometimes hear my name used in circumstances that actually make me cringe. I was thinking of a specific example where we had to decide whether we were going to have a certain event inside the community temple or outside on the grounds. And so somebody asked my advice. I pointed out certain things. It will get dark. It will get cold. It might rain. It was just something like on that level. So maybe it would be better to have it inside. Then I read, Asha wants to have it inside. And I read, no, Asha doesn't want to have it inside. It's going to rain. That's why we're going to have it inside. But it, it... it puts me in a ridiculous position as, as like, it's like I have opinions and my opinions must be followed. No, I just look at reality and we decide what's good. So when we start making our life run by, by invoking the guru, it can turn into, and here's where I'm wanting to, it can turn into overscrupulosity also. That this is how it's supposed to be. You know, he wants it this, he wants that, he wants this, he wants that. And then pretty soon you you get very confused because you're not feeling it in a flow anymore. This is what, I think this is what Swami meant by, I'm sort of sorting this out as I say it. So this is what Swami meant by the important things. Swami understood where Master was trying to go. And then as he would try to get there, you know, different inspirations would unfold. But it wasn't like every step of the way was Master's will, Master's will, Master's will. I once heard Swami's name invoked, you know, as being the, the designer of some very small object that really showed no particular creativity. And I was distressed by that because if, if Swami designed this square bookmark, you know, then he's designed this square table, then he's designed this cup, and then pretty soon everything is preordained and there's no flow of energy. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a very subtle point. And that's why I found this one so interesting. Oh, you know my will. And the important things, at least. So 
Swami's, what, 25 when he asked this question, and he served Master till he was 86. And all through that, Swami was just following it. And I mean, how could Master know that he would know? But I think what he felt was that he felt like Swami had grasped the essentials. And he was in tune on the fundamental level of what we were doing and how we were going to do it. And I, I think that's really how we have to think about it. And then, if that extends out so that one feels that one is always moving in, uh, you know, inside Master's body and that he's moving your body, then that is a, a state to be devoutly longed for. Swamiji himself said in the end of his life, he, he, he tried to feel as if he were looking through the world through Master's eyes. And he said he, he began to feel that that's exactly what was happening. That, Swami, that Master was just in him and that he was just looking at the world with not his own consciousness but with Master's consciousness. So that contradicts everything I just said. You know, it's, it's where we're really trying to get. It's just that these are very subtle. We have to just work with them. And, and part of also, I guess what I'm saying is we have to be very humble about this. You know, we have to be very humble. We can sincerely try and we can pray with all our hearts that every decision we're making is God-guided and God-inspired. And maybe it will be. But we have to be humble also. We have to... I remember when the, we, uh, we, we... This was part of when we were trying to make the San Francisco ashram happen, and there was a lot of... We got our wires crossed, and Swami drove like an hour for this class, and there were just, was almost nobody there. And afterwards, we tried to put a brave face on it by saying, well, I guess the people that... Divine Mother wanted to be there, we're there. And Swami said, please, don't blame Divine Mother. He said, leave a little room for human error. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think that's what I'm talking about. You know, it's sometimes we just make a mistake and, and we have to be ready. I was talking about something I did that turned out really, really badly. And I just commented, well, you know, I felt inspired to do it. And who knows whether I was right or wrong. Maybe it was God's will that it turn out badly, or maybe God was tricking me. I mean, or I was tricking myself. Who knows? Om, om, om. Okay, number 370. Behind every rose bush of pleasure, this is such a depressing one. Number 370. I'm a little note. Read at your own peril. Okay. Behind every rose bush of pleasure, the master used to say, lies a rattlesnake of suffering, coiled and ready to strike. Oh, gosh. Can't you say something nice, master? Be ever attentive not to be bitten, as can happen if you allow yourself to become attracted to anything that merely fans your infatuation. In somewhere in the Gita, they use the word infatuation. Desire leads to infatuation. Infatuation is a very interesting word. Um, I think Sri Teshwar refers to it when he was talking about being a child and he became fixated on this one particular ugly dog. And his family tried to get him to be interested in some other more attractive dog, but he absolutely insisted on this this one dog. And he, he talked about attachment, desire. You just... you. you you lose your discrimination. And that's how the Bhagavad Gita talks about it. You become obsessed with one reality. And infatuation is, you know, 
when people are when people think in terms of romance and they think of early romance, you become infatuated with someone. It doesn't mean that you see them more clearly. It just it means that you're uh, you're uh, absorbed in their reality, and they always stand out to you in this really specific, powerful way. All of us, either at one time or another, have been through periods where we become infatuated, usually with someone, but we can also become infatuated with things, a certain car, a certain hairstyle, a certain dress or something, and we just, our, our, our interest in it becomes exaggerated. And our perception of it, and that's different than really loving someone. You can really love someone without having that element of, over-personalizing it? I'm not exactly sure. But Master says here, the rattlesnakes the rattlesnakes will bite you if you allow yourself to become attracted to anything that merely fans your infatuation. So those are... He's not talking about loving. I remember when I was uh, in my early years at Ananda and I, I, I had a, one relationship that was very difficult these were both women. One relationship was very difficult and one relationship that was just pure joy. Both of them were soul sisters and still are to this day, but one I had personality clashes with and the other I had wonderful harmony. This was, my only excuse for this is that I was very young on the path and I just would overthink things and, and just really, as you'll hear, come up with really, really odd ideas. So I decided that I was always being bounced between, you know, this... Um, very wonderful friendship in this negative uh, clash. And so I said to Swamiji one day that the problem was because even-minded was what I wasn't. So I suggested to Swamiji that if I actually loved this one less, then the contrast would be less, and then maybe the whole thing would work better. And Swami, this was one of the few times that he ever spoke to me like this, he said, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. (laughs) Which I loved being corrected. <laughs> I mean, I would bring to him ideas and he would tell me. I mean, he also said it in such a way that I had to laugh. But he said, you know, that kind of friendship that you have, he said, is to show you what's possible. And it's not meant to be denigrated. Everything else should be lifted up to that. So the difference between infatuation and true deep love is that infatuation tells you that there is only one possible solution, and this is the solution. And of course, in human life, we love our own child, we love our own mother, we love our own partner, we love what, you know, we love things specifically, but infatuation elevates that aspect to um, unrealistic proportions. And also, declares that there will be no other, that this is it forever, there will be no other, there can be no other. You know, this mates for these very overdramatic experiences that people have. And that's where the suffering comes in, when we lose our discrimination. That's how the Gita puts it. Desire leads to infatuation, and infatuation, when desires are thwarted, then um, we become angry, and when we become angry, we lose our discrimination. You know, you, we see it, unfortunately, in our age all the time, that people start being very positive and then they gradually become angry. And then that which starts out beautifully ends up extremely painful, and that's the rattlesnake of suffering that's hidden behind it. 
So it's not that we shouldn't give our whole hearts to people or you know, just really commit ourselves with fearless determination. That's exactly what we're supposed to do. Is that we have to realize that we're acting as instruments for the divine and that whatever specific manifestation is in front of us, we're loving God through it. And is that easy? No. <laughs> no, not at all. That's why behind every rose bush of pleasure, there's a rattlesnake. And unfortunately, that seems to be how we learn. But you learn. You, you realize you go through experiences and it's, you, you make mistakes. We make mistakes. And then we adjust and we get better. And then we adjust and we get better and then we adjust and we get better. And that just seems to be the way it works. So, and that rattlesnake biting us just gets our attention. I, I, uh, I don't approve, but there it is. Nobody asked me. <laughs> Swamiji used to play that game. He would, he would look at like a building design or something or an automobile design, something he had absolutely nothing to do with. And he would get very serious and he would announce... I approve, <laughs> as if the whole planet were just waiting to know if you did or not. But it was his way of making fun of attitudes that people have, like they think that they're really in charge and that everybody has to ask them. So he would act as if he actually had a voice and things that he had no voice on at all. And uh, it would help us remember. So I think the way the universe is made, with that rattlesnake behind every rose bush, is highly unfortunate, but... No saint who has ever attained God-realization has thought it was a bad system. And that's what we have to say. And if one is honest at all about oneself, um, I mean, I certainly have to feel that way. The, the, the experiences I welcome the least have often been the only way to get from here to there. And I, I just wouldn't have been able to get from here to there. And where I am is a place that I, I'm deeply grateful to be. I mean inwardly, and I know that everything that happened. I remember when I was, my 36th birthday, which was my first 12-year cycle on the spiritual path, because I, I came to Ananda when I was 24. And every 12 years, Jupiter makes a complete circle in your horoscope, and this is my almost my whole knowledge of astrology right here. But whenever that completes, there's a, a shift. And it was almost like on the morning of my 36th birthday, I felt that whereas my inclination had been slightly tilted away from where I was trying to go, that my own inner self was always fighting me, I just felt that it turned positive. (laughs) But positive probably by about as much width as this. (laughs) I mean, just, you know, just about as thin as a thin piece of paper. But that was enough. I thought of my inclination like being a marble and if you, if you put the, a marble on a surface it doesn't have to be tilted very far in any direction and the marble will roll effortlessly in that direction and it doesn't have to be a lot because nothing really changed dramatically except just that slight feeling that when I set the marble of my consciousness down it rolled a little more in the direction I wanted it instead of automatically rolling away but I had a profound feeling at that moment that absolutely everything that I had done and that had happened to me, and there were many things that happened in those first 12 years, that I'm glad 
most people don't know about, <laughs> that were just mortifying, absolutely mortifying in retrospect, and awful when they when I happened. But I could just feel absolutely every one of them was essential. That 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 tip could never have happened if every single one of those chaotic, crazy, painful, embarrassing, mortifying, whatever the words are, all of them were required. And 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 then of course that the vividness of that fades. But I, I remembered the experience. And that's where age is a great you're a real friend because you you really realize how many times that happens and it makes you a little less freaked out when it happens again. Until one becomes completely calm. Until it's just, oh well, here we go again. And you know, one is calmer than one was, but not as calm as one will be, is the way I think about it. Swamiji is the measure. Okay, number 371. The Master had been speaking of God and spiritual subjects one evening. Gradually the talk shifted to political concerns. The Master paused, then said with a laugh, from God to politics, such is the power of his maya, of his cosmic illusion. You know, that, I, I said to Swamiji once, everything you do, you do because that's the way Master did it. Isn't that true? Swamiji said, yes. And I said, and the things that you refrain from doing, that's because Master refrained from doing them. Isn't that true? Swami said, yes. And this was just interesting because that's what Swamiji was like when you know, he was so interesting to be with. In the last years of his life, he got much more withdrawn. But for most of the years that I knew him, he was so actively engaged. And it was just like that. We go from the most extraordinarily elevated, subtle spiritual principles, you know, to be talking about a particular curry or or a politician or some financial circumstance in the world. I mean, his mind was so free-ranging. And everything was interesting because there's always a, a self-realization point of view because everything is God's creation. And even, he's just talking about conversation. I was remembering one January 5th, I think it was. You know, at Ananda Village in the early years, we had no um, no form of entertainment except a record player or a cassette player. But there was no movies or anything like that. And there was one movie theater in, in Nevada City and every so often, Swamiji would take us all into town and we'd all go to a movie. He wasn't averse to doing that. I can't remember going to many restaurants. I don't think there were many that were good, but we would occasionally go to a movie. And I remember one January 5th, we started with an early morning meditation. We had a magnificent uh, Sunday service that Swami gave. I think it was a Sunday. Then we had an Indian banquet and then he spoke. And then the evening we went to town and went to a movie. And we always went to something that wasn't, you know, that was at least okay. Not that anything was really good. But I just remember sitting in the movie theater thinking, wow, the play of God. It just, for in, the, in the span of 12 or 15 hours, you know, so many different things had happened. But the thing about it being with Swamiji was his consciousness was always so elevated. I was talking to Nirmala and Dharmadas about this, who lived with him in India and, of course, knew him very closely for decades. We were just both talking about just there was nothing that you ever did with Swami that wasn't just more fun than anything else you'd ever done before. 
just because his awareness was always so elevated that when you were anywhere near him, your awareness was elevated. When I was very first at Ananda Village and had the opportunity to spend time with him, I tried to think about what it was that I enjoyed so much. And what it was was really simple. You know, you just, I, I was wide awake when I was with Swami because he, he was so wide awake that in order to just be there, you had to be wide awake. And I loved that. I loved being uh, stimulated, being challenged, being lifted. But it, it was lifted in the sense of intellectual conversation, but it was mostly lifted in the capacity to feel the joy no matter what was going on around you. And then, you know, that's, that's the promise um, of, of that, that carries one through all the rest of it. Is the only reason I'm not feeling the joy is because there's some karmic k- karma that's blocking it, and if I can burn through the karma, then on the other side of it I'll find it. I guess, oh, it was the Gita uh, webinar that I was giving a couple of days ago. I was trying to remember. the it was, It's uh, chapter 3, verse 2. Uh, stanza three, verse two. Is that how it, it's the other way? Chapter three, stanza two. I always get there. I always get confused. But it was talking about how the natural inclination of the consciousness is to rise, like a, he, Swami used the image of a hot air balloon. But you put sandbags around the edge of the hot air balloon. Once it's once it's fired up, to keep it on the ground, you weight it down, and then when you want it to rise, you throw the ballast over and then the balloon will go up. Of course, to bring it down, you, you let the hot air out so that it gradually begins to sink and then you throw the ballast back on. But that ballast, it's like what he was trying to say, what he was trying, saying there is, if we don't interfere, we naturally go up. It's, it's not like we're naturally sad and then we have to fight our way to joy. It's that we're naturally joyous but we have allowed all these um, illusory things to persuade us that now we have a reason not to be. And I've gradually come to appreciate that actually all karma is the same. Whatever the specific details are, I mean karma in the sense of something that pulls you down. It's just something that persuades you that now I can't be joyful because I haven't gotten the job I've wanted, because I've lost all my money, because the person I love doesn't love me, because my leg is broken, because my body is old, whatever it might be, something persuades us that now I can't be elevated in my consciousness. And so all solutions are all the same, which is, yes, I can. <laughs> Just like that. I, I know it's not easy, but it makes one less interested over time. I mean, I've, I've just gotten it down to fear, sadness, anger. You know, it doesn't really matter what causes it. Once I, whatever it is that I'm getting, that's what I get. D- discouragement. You know, we all have different words in different moments. We, we run through, we run through the whole, you know, the whole circle. I want to just read number 372 because it's completely relevant. The Master used to tell us, I suffer when you have moods, for then I see that Satan gets a hold of you. And that's a very frank statement, isn't it? When you have a mood, it's because Satan has gotten a hold of you. The dark force has persuaded you 
that now you must feel separate from God. And, and that's, a, that's just a good way to think about it because when we get involved in those dark moods, as Swamiji put it, part of the satanic illusion is that we become persuaded that we have to relate seriously to them. <laughs> we have to think about them. We have to, we have to contemplate. We have to reflect. We have to do all these things when really we just have to liberate ourselves from them. We don't have to indulge them. Uh, in another place, Swami wrote, um, it, it, it's not in this book, it's in uh, something he said. He, he, when he took a seclusion in India in 1995, he said afterwards that, he said it was a bit of a difficult seclusion because Satan was trying to, he was, he was battling a dark force. And he said, and Satan kept wanting him to feel sad and discouraged. This was in the middle of the litigation when Ananda was having a really hard time. And it was, it wasn't, it was, it was not the best of times. It was more like the worst of times. But he said, first he said, but I didn't mind. He said, I just meditated and gradually he went away. The darkness went away. But he said, a master can correct you, can even scold you very very firmly, he said, but at the end you will always feel encouraged. Regardless of what is said to you, you will always feel encouraged. He said, Satan will make you feel discouraged. He said, so that's how you can tell what influence it is. And I was thinking about that in terms of moods or in terms of the rattlesnakes. And so on like that, it's if you're thinking, if you're contemplating an error you made or some disappointment, if you feel discouraged, you're not picking it up from the right thread. If you're picking it up from the right thread, you will see that a correction is needed. But, but the, the, the knowledge of what you need to change will give you hope rather than making you feel sad about it. And if it's Satan who's influencing you, you can't believe anything else that you think because everything is going to be uh, according to that false reasoning. There's a, a song in the oratorio which is um, The Temptation of Christ, the oratorio of the life of Christ. And there's, four, there's a quartet and one of the quartet is Satan speaking to Jesus, offering him dominion over this whole world. And it's, it's very interesting because um, it's not really clear at the beginning that it is actually Satan speaking. You know, I'll just, if you just um, reclaim what you've given, you know, I'll give you dominion over this whole world and you can have anything you want. Just worship me to satisfy all human needs. You're not even sure who he is that's speaking at that point. And then the voice of Christ comes in, of Jesus. Get thee behind me, Jesus declared. But it's like, Satan's proposition seems quite reasonable. <laughs> and it's only when the music shifts that you realize that it was Satan who was speaking to you. So it's, it's actually not so simple to know. Master said, Swami said, Satan insinuates himself into our consciousness by the medium of our own false reasoning. Which is, if you feel discouraged, you are not being guided correctly. The way I sometimes like to think about it is, God promises a happy ending, and if this isn't the happy ending, this isn't the ending. 
And it's just as simple as that. So if we feel discouraged, that's a false belief because it's not over yet. So let's take a, a short break. I was asked a question. We were talking about, um, I'm going to start over for the third time. This is being filmed on, I believe it's April 16th um, of 2019. And uh, yesterday the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris caught fire. So it was a big event. We were just trying to talk about what, what it might mean in terms of what does it symbolize. I mean, some things are obvious. I mean, on on the on the negative side of it, you know, there's just a lot of dissonance in the worldwide right now. And the, the fire breaking out, I mean, it's a man-made structure. And as far as anyone knows, it was not deliberate. And we all pray to God it wasn't deliberate because it would be such a terrible thing for somebody to have done and such a terrible thing on their karmic burden. But nonetheless, it happened. Um, Swamiji, is, a master said that, you know, the everything is influenced on the planet by human thought. And he, he talked about, and I, I can't draw the lines, but there's an article like from the 1930s or maybe from the 40s um, about world conditions in which Master talked about, you know, uh, something happening in Ethiopia that created a, a dissonant wave over here and then the war started and then, then, then it, it caused the tornado and then it caused the influenza ep- epidemic. Now, I don't, I mean, each of those things is not exactly what he said, but that's what he said. The the human action, the dissonant thought, the weather pattern, um, the germ, the invasion of germs, that it's all part of a, a flow of energy. So when you see on the planet right now this extraordinarily, extraordinary and ever-increasing dissonance, which... I mean, I, I harp on the music, but Swami harped on the music, harped, and there's a pun, isn't it? But he harped on the music, double entendre, I guess you say. Um, he harped on the music a lot, because he said music not only reflects consciousness, it creates it. And just everywhere, the music is so dissonant. It's just not beautiful, it's just dissonant. I, I was at the YMCA, and they're having a water aerobics class, and the, the music coming over the loudspeaker, it's just, there's nothing beautiful about it. It's just harsh and it's abrasive. And these are just like older women paddling around in a swimming pool, but they're just being assaulted. And it's, it's worse because of the water. I think it goes into you more. But it's just, it's very, very distant. And nobody seems to, to object. I seem to be the only one who objects. I mean, the, they all want it. But there's, it's creating a great deal of dissonance in the way that we're treating the natural world and treating each other and on and on like that. It doesn't go away. It creates dissonant vibrations. And those dissonant vibrations keep creating dissonant events like a gorgeous, um, um, iconic, um, devotional image you know, gets, gets mutilated because with our thoughts we're mutilating iconic spiritual things. When um, the Virgin Mary started appearing in Medjugorje, um, which was now many years ago, and she, she continues to appear, I mean, she just pleaded with people, you know, do the rosary. You can save this planet. You have no idea if we can create devotional, pure vibrations. She actually said there are ten cataclysms that were slated for this world 
one of them has been mitigated because of the devotional response to her apparition. And that's very powerful. But that, that says that the other forces are at work. And just look at the world. It's so dissonant. So I think it is a sign of just dissonance in which things go wrong. It also is just a sign of the changing yugas. You know, all these physical things. I used to wonder how we could have depression. This was just my childish thinking. And there's just so much stuff around. <laughs> you know, But stuff can be burned up in a heartbeat or flooded or just blown away, ripped to shreds. It's like this world, everything that we cling to like this, when Ananda Village burned in 1976, it was really interesting because it just went away so fast. I mean, so much of it just went away so fast, land and buildings, not everything, but a lot of it. And it just went away like that. We just stood there and just watched it. And it just, there you had a building and then you had a pile of ash. And it, it really made you feel differently about relying upon this world. And wars come and these things happen. Um, that's why we have to be very strong inside ourselves. And this is everything that I was saying earlier about always, no matter what's going on outwardly, to always, Master said, always keep some of your attention at the spiritual eyes so that you'll just be always following that ray of light and not get too confused. So the obvious question that came after was how can you be less reactive to things that happen? You know, whatever uh, one one chooses a horoscope that makes a personality. So when Mars is doing this and something like that, all these different things happen. We have inclinations. I think you become less reactive by experiencing the bite of the rattlesnake that comes when you are reactive. And when the memory of that becomes so strong that the pleasure of just having an undisciplined tongue and an undisciplined mind um, is, is, not, is not... When you realize that that's worse, you just don't want it anymore. I, I'm, I tend to be reactive. I'm very fast. I just am too fast. Words come to me too fast. So I can have the words as quickly as the impulse is there to say them. Having a, If I had a slightly slower process in my mind, at least I wouldn't be able to say it so fast, and that might give me a heartbeat. I, my only way I can think about it is constant prayer and suffering. Because, and then, of course, one does Kriya, one uh, learns to count to ten, one habitually does japa, one trains oneself to have a different reaction. But it, it, there's no shortcut to it. There's, you know, it's, it's one of those things where there was a man who used to sit in this class and every question he asked, I realized after seven or eight or ten years. He was a very interesting man. I liked him. He's a friend still. He asked very interesting questions. He doesn't live here anymore, so in this community. He asked very interesting questions and he was fun to have in class. But I gradually realized that every question he asked was the same one. And the question one, isn't there... And the question was... Isn't there a shortcut? (laughs) Do I really have to 
reverse every wrong karmic inclination that I've set up? Isn't there some other way? And actually, no, there isn't. And that's, that's how I feel about the reactive process, about getting hot and getting excited about things, which I have a tendency, have had a tendency to do, is that you just keep doing it and you keep experiencing the really terrible consequences of doing it. And then gradually you get it. Um, now I know there's a lot of other things that could be said that are very practical. Um, but I can't think of any of them right now. All I can actually think of is, because it's what it is is, it's everything else that you do. It's like, what is, what is one's basic motivation and desire in life? And every, every time you allow yourself to run, I mean, even when you're not being reactive, but when you allow yourself to just run, you know, toward things or grabbing things or getting too excited about things, and imagining fulfillments all, and, and getting your heart set on certain things that, and then they get thwarted. Because they're always going to be thwarted. So what makes me safe? How do I solve any problem in my life? In the moment, I don't know what to do. But the way I work with it is I watch my thoughts all the time. And I practice when it's easier. There's the answer. You practice when it's easier. When you're getting, you don't allow yourself even to get a little off center. A little off center is a lot if that's your inclination. So you have to just discipline it everywhere. And you have to discipline your thinking. Above all, every time you want to blame, every time you want to be afraid, you have to reframe it. And reframe it with real willpower, not just with, with pretty words. Oh, everything happens for the best. It'll always be fine. You know, with that kind of like, oh, yeah, it'll just be fine. Actually, you know, you don't even believe it when you say it. You have to actually remember that it will be fine. Regardless, it will be fine. And so, therefore, there's no reason to get upset about it because it will be fine. And I, I don't know. I've struggled with this all my life. I'm very impulsive, have been. I am very re- have been very reactive. I'm very fast. But I haven't given up, and as a consequence, I'm much less than I was. But I work with it all the time. I just I can't let myself start thinking, oh, so-and-so is just such an unpleasant person. Why do they ever behave like that? You know, even if I'm not reacting, I'm just thinking it. But then, when something happens here, and that thought pattern is in my head, then it'll trigger me. So I have to constantly, all the time, be reframing everything so that it doesn't lead to my being irate. You know, irate is the word I finally came out with. I easily become irate, you know. But if you do, you have to stop. Because most big issues are also your little issues. You know, why doesn't the waitress bring me our check? We're ready to leave. No, (laughs) it's just fine. She's very busy. She'll bring it to us when she's ready. You know, everything like that. Does that make sense? And then it did, you have to decide how important it is. It's very important, but you have to decide how, how much, how important it is in, in one's own life, how much, because we put our energy in the things that matter to us. So, 
Say again. Oh, yes, it's totally important, but it's hard to control. That's why I was saying there's just no shortcut. I just think of it like this. I do think of it like this. Um, Bliss is infinite. Delusion is finite. Therefore, there is a finite quantity of times that I will do the wrong thing. But there's an infinite quantity of times I will do the right thing. So every time I make an error and do the wrong thing, respond incorrectly, whatever it might be, that's one less. (laughs) And I mean, that, that is a pretty extreme comfort, but it really is. It's like I have set all this energy in motion that caused me to have a, a, an astrological chart that causes me to be like this, and that astrological chart matches my chakras, and I created the energy in my chakras by lifetimes of action, and so every single one of those wrong actions has to be with determined, disciplined willpower reversed. And there's no shortcut. Kriya, of course, is a shortcut. I mean, if you, you know, if you really, now I'm remembering, I mean, Kriya is a huge shortcut, devotion to God, service, all of those things. But in the moment, and you just stop yourself as fast as you can. I, the, what I worked out, which actually has worked really well for me, is that I began to recognize the physiological feeling of reactiveness, the, the posture of reactiveness, the volume and tone of my voice, and a few specific words that we're all part of. And instead of thinking about the specifics or the details, whenever I felt any of those signs, I knew I was wrong and I was off, and as quickly as possible I needed to stop. And that actually has worked pretty well. As soon as I hear that sound of my, that particular tone of my voice, I mean, I would literally put my hand over my mouth. It's like whatever else is going to come out should not come out. And usually there's a huge impulse to have it come out. But if it's coming out in that tone of voice, I don't want to be doing it. And that, that actually helped turn a lot of energy around. That, I mean, that's a very dramatic thing to do, but it really did work. And, and that meant has meant walking out of the room. You know, just stop. Because wherever you're going, you don't want to go. Get mastery and then come back. You can also tell by the look on the faces of the people around you. (laughs) Who see you, there you go again. They do not look happy. Okay. This is only marginally appropriate, um, but I think we're all looking for ways to get away from those things. And uh, it just reminds me of... uh, uh, Jaya's announcement of the one spiritual power that it acquired, which is to be able to find happiness at will. And, you know, that's a practice that can be really helpful as well. Sure, it can. If you can train yourself to see these other things, like that physiological feeling that presides you some bad behavior, and you suddenly you look at that as a wake-up call, and uh, the, what you do with a wake-up call is joy. Easier said than done, but it could be helpful. Mm-hmm. And you see the, the part of you that makes you reactive, makes a person reactive, is also a kind of quick-wittedness and a responsiveness and an empathy. So nothing is ever a totally bad quality. It, or, or, you know, a capacity to put feelings into words. All of these things can all be very positive. And most of our 
worst qualities or our best qualities taken too far. So we don't, we don't have to abandon who we are. We just have to back up about a quarter of an inch, you know, and just hold it and then decide. You know, it also, it's just, I mean, there's actual very simple things. Don't always be the first person in the room to speak. <laughs> if, something is, if something is presented, don't be the first one to respond to it. You know, just wait and let, let leave a little room in the room for something else to, be, to happen. And even if you're alone, leave a little room in the room for God to speak to. So I mean, even, even that is a, like a point, which is allow a little silence between when something happens and when you respond to it. And that silence is often enough to feel the physiological and hear the voice beginning to start. Someone said to me once, everybody when you're having a group discussion, the people who think fast do all the talking because the ones who are trying to think through their reactions never get a word in edgewise. <laughs> Which was a very interesting point because I think fast. And I started trying to leave a little silence and let just another energy come into the room. Okay? That's the counting to ten theory. <clears throat> Number 373. Extend help to those who are weak. But if you yourself are weak, remember it is the greatest sin to spread that infection by making others weak. That's Master's own words. It's the greatest sin. Well, what he's talking about is causing other people to feel discouraged. Because that's, you know, we were talking earlier, I was saying earlier about Satan makes you feel discouraged. Weakness is the belief that I can't go forward anymore. That's what weakness is. Because obstacles come to everybody. But success is just having the courage and the capacity to keep going regardless of those obstacles. And weakness is to lose hope and therefore to lose energy. So if what you're going to say or do is going to cause others to lose their will to persevere. That's why he calls it a sin, because that's a satanic influence. But it's a really interesting thing to think about. He calls it an infection. So even if if you're afraid, you don't necessarily want to spread it around. And that's why people of strong, positive willpower and magnetism can often, I was thinking of like generals in battle, can often just take a group of otherwise ordinary people and just bring them along, because courage is also infectious. You know, the ability to go forward, and you can help people a lot, but at the very least, if you feel weak, don't spread it around. Don't feel you have to tell everyone that this is going to be a disaster, (laughs) if they don't know. Swami was very sensitive to that. Um, It was very interesting when he would give public satsangs, because he was very courteous by nature, and and he he would listen to people. But sometimes in public satsangs, he would just cut people off, you know, in the way that just it's, people would interpret it as being so rude. And, uh, and, you know, they would be starting to ask a question and he would just either, he would just either be dismissive or he would usually just interrupt and just start doing, answering their question before they finished asking it or answering a question that was related to what they asked but wasn't really what they asked. He would take over. But I began to think, Swami's not at all rude, so what is he really doing? And uh, I realized that whenever he would see that someone was spreading weakness, 
And the way I would think about it is they were bringing, they were, they were pulling the energy down. If the energy was positive and they were beginning to, to make it go negative, he just wouldn't let them do it. He wouldn't let them do it for their sake. And he also wouldn't let him do it, wouldn't let them infect other people in the room with their discouragement. Uh, about the community? Mm-hmm. I was remembering that too. When we first decided to go into the property that we are in now, we were trying to... Dis- no, it was long before that was there. We were just talking about whether or not we wanted to have a community. This was in 1986. And we were having this all-day retreat to try to help focus our energy and magnetize it so that we could get a community to live in. And... Everybody in the room, there was a whole series of people who were being very positive. The most positive people were people who had lived at Ananda Village and understood how community would help us. So there was this very positive energy going in the room. And then one person expressed some fear and doubt. Then the second person expressed fear and doubt. And when the third person started to do it, I was moderating the meeting. I just watched this. We had this wonderful positive flow. And I just watched the balloon deflating. And the third person was right in the middle of his very important speech. And I said, oh, look, it's lunchtime, <laughs> just like that, and just stopped. And he was mad at me, I think, for the rest of my life. He just, he felt so insulted, but I could not let him keep talking. He was just taking, he was killing, he was killing the room. And then we just never opened it up like that again, because we could see that there were too many people who didn't have strength for this project. And we, they were going to infect the whole room if we let them talk. And from a certain point of view, people say, well, you know, everybody should be allowed to say what they feel. And, and there's a time and a place for that. But you also have to think about the magnetism. And you have to think about one's own responsibility for the magnetism also. And that's what uh, Master is talking about here. It's really quite a statement. Um, mental attitudes are, are shared. And no, one, no one exists in a vacuum. Even you know, the thoughts that we have, and this is when we come into a group meditation, Swami said at one point, people think, well, my restlessness is my own business, but not really, because it contributes or it doesn't. Now, that doesn't mean you should stay home. <laughs> it's just one more incentive to, you know, to try to be the best person we can be. Master says, number 374, don't pine for visions in meditation. In ecstasy, in ecstasy, they become a disturbance. Oh my gosh. I have so much to see in meditation. I drive visions away. Now, I don't have a lot to say about that, but isn't it fascinating? That was where a Master wrote to Rajasi about various things he could try when he was in his ecstatic meditations. I think that we'll all wake up to that someday. I mean, I'd love to, I don't particularly crave visions, but it would be nice to see this world, to not see this world. (laughs) I mean, it would just be really nice to actually break. I mean, sometimes lately I walk around and I just wish I could just break from this reality. But uh, it comes to us if God wants us to, and it doesn't if he doesn't. Of course we can, but I would eventually, eventually, why not now? <laughs> but it it comes back to what you were quoting about Jaya. When Jaya was asked if he had superconscious experiences, he said, well, no, but I've developed the ability to choose happiness. 
And I can't declare that I always can, but I can certainly do it a lot better than I could when I started. I mean, it's, you know, you just, you are where you are. Where, wherever we are in our consciousness is we've spent a long time getting here and we can't be, we can't be a millisecond more advanced than we are. But if we keep going in the same direction, then when we look back in another 10 years, we'll be someplace we want to be. And that's basically really what it comes down to. Swamiji says courage is the first essential for a, for a spiritual aspirant. And that courage is just to believe in what you're doing and to keep doing it. And then get enough experience that you can say, wow, it actually worked. There's still a lot in front of me, but there's more behind me than there was before. So, all right, God bless. We went from um, 369 through 374.